0: All right, well, if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking this morning at uh, verses 9 through 15. Uh, it's great to be back with you again this morning. My, if you weren't here last night, my name's Sean Slate, and uh, I'm the pastor at, what's the name of my church, Redeemer, uh, Church of Knoxville, and I'm uh, a former uh, campus minister at the University of Virginia. I was there for 10 years. And it's great to be with you. Wahoo wah. Wahoo wah. UVA. Virginia. Hooray. Hooray. Ray Ray. UVA. Uh, But it's, it's, anyways, you know, the morning talk I think is one of the most difficult because everybody was up really late eating s'mores and reading their Bibles and praying uh, all night. Flirting. uh, Whatever it is. Probably flirting. And you're exhausted from all the flirting. You needed protein this morning. And you got a biscuit. And, uh, you know... (laughs) It's so heavy. Um, um, so we're going to have to like, really work hard together uh, and bear with one another. Uh, I'll ch- y'all try to stay awake, uh, and I'll try to make this fast. All right? So I don't know if it will. It's probably like 75 minutes, so just hang in there. Sure. Wow. Uh, I got a lot to say. So uh, this weekend, what we're talking about is we're talking about the sufficiency of Jesus. And what, what I mean by that when I say that Jesus is sufficient, what I mean is that Jesus is enough. And I think that this is really important because when we think about our own lives, uh, we rarely feel as if we are enough. We feel like we need to be more. We feel like we need to do more. And when we come to Christianity, we look at Jesus and we think, oh, okay, he's kind of interesting and he'll probably be helpful in helping me become sufficient in this world. But the difficulty is that uh, for us as Christians is that what we know is that we aren't sufficient. It's not just that we don't feel sufficient, we aren't sufficient. We aren't sufficient for all the things that come in our path. We're not sufficient to battle all the battles that come into our life. And so as Christians what we know is that Jesus is everything or He is nothing. And yet the struggle continues because we constantly feel like we're not good enough or smart enough or moral enough or sold out enough. We don't read our Bibles enough. We don't pray enough. We don't go to church enough or RUF enough or not nice enough. Right? We feel insufficient. And so oftentimes over time as we come to Christianity and we're thinking, I've been a Christian for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20, 30 years, and I still feel and am insufficient. I want to give up on Christianity. Not because of Jesus, but because of me. And what Jesus wants to do, what Christianity is continually inviting us to, is to return to Jesus and see his sufficiency once again. And so this weekend, that's what we're talking about, the sufficiency of Jesus. All right. Last night, we talked about the sufficiency of his story. This morning, I want to talk about the sufficiency of union. Uh, tonight, we'll talk about the sufficiency of resting. And then tomorrow morning, we'll talk about the sufficiency of new life. All right? But this, this morning, we're going to talk about the sufficiency of union. So with that in mind, let's look together. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is the word of the Lord. Well done, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are very thankful... Uh, for this your word that you're a God who is not hidden nor a God who is silent but a God who delights to make himself known and you have done that you have done that in your word by your spirit and ultimately you have done that in the person and work of Jesus so it really is our prayer that this weekend and in particular right now uh, you would attend unto us by your spirit to show us lovely things about you and this your word we pray in the name of Christ Amen cover up my hair, if I can. All right, well, if any of you are like me, uh, there's often times in your life where you feel like no one can understand the trouble I'm in, right? No one can understand the temptations that overwhelm me and the struggles that we face. I mean, some of you are struggling with uh, same-sex attraction. Uh, Some of you are struggling with massive loneliness. As some of you are first years and have just gone off to college for the first time, you're struggling with deep homesickness. Others of you uh, find yourself addicted to certain substances or certain images. Others of you are just riddled with anxiety, you can't make any decisions and you're just shutting down. Others of you are filled with bitterness. And then there are others of us who have just had horrible things done against us. And we feel powerless and we feel alone, and we feel full of shame. And we really wonder, is there anyone who could ever understand these things that I'm going through? Is there anyone who could be with me in that? Is there anyone who could actually help me? And what tends to happen for all of us is in the midst of all these struggles and all these temptations, um, those struggles, those battles begin to overwhelm you, and they become everything to you. Right? It's those battles, it's those struggles, those sin issues that are a part of your life, the corruption of your life that actually takes over and it occupies all of your attention and it begins to define you and it begins to shape the way you interact with the entire world. And in many ways, our struggles and our temptations are like uh, like a sore back. If any of you have ever hurt your back that's, or thrown out your back, that's what happens when you go past 40 (laughs) uh, your back starts to hurt and when your back starts to hurt the only thing you can think about is managing the pain the only thing you can think about is what position can i get in so i don't hurt right now right and this pain occupies all of your energy and all of your thoughts and that's what happens for us in the midst of our weakness and our brokenness and our temptations it rules everything and we think is this who I am? Is this all that there will be in my life? Will there ever be any relief, or will I be stuck in this all by myself? And that became the struggle for the Colossians. The Colossians had started off strong. Uh, sorry, uh, just changed on me a little bit. All right, uh, the Colossians had started off strong. They were incredibly excited about Jesus, and yet over time they began to feel weak and empty their temptations and their battles began to overwhelm them and they began to feel as if they weren't enough. They weren't wise enough, right? These temptations had begun to overwhelm their bodies and they felt like they were doing something wrong and that Jesus was not sufficient for their particular struggles. And so what began to happen was that these false teachers had come to town and they started saying, look, we know that you know about Jesus and He's pretty interesting. He can be pretty helpful, but you need to know these deeper Ways of holiness. You need to know these deeper powers and experiences that are that are possible with God. And so they began to feel as if they needed more than Jesus. And that they needed to sort of tap into the spiritual powers and the deeper, stricter disciplines of ritualistic ascetic practices. And so Paul is writing to his friends and he's saying, Look, I want you to remember that Jesus really is sufficient for your battles. And he does this by saying, I want you to remember that you have been united to Jesus. I know, I know that you feel the power of your sin. I know that you feel empty. I know that you feel weak. But what I want you to know is that you are not alone. But Jesus is with you in the midst of it. And it seems to me that we often think that our biggest problem is our issue. Or, our biggest problem is our sin. But our biggest problem is that we try to deal with the sin apart from Jesus. And what Paul is saying, he is wanting to write to us, he's wanting to lift our eyes from these battles so that we might see Jesus once again. What he is doing is he is inviting us to see that we are more than our struggles, you are more than your sins. You are more than the battle. You are more than the temptation. You have been united to Christ. Nine times in verses 6 through 15. So if you're a math major, nine times in ten verses, Paul says you are either uh, in Jesus or you are with Jesus. And by doing that, what he is saying is you are not alone in this world and you have everything you need for the battle and for the temptation and for the struggle and for the corruption and for your weakness. But the question for us is how? How is it that we then can connect to this one that Paul says that we are united to? And the answer he gives us is weird. It's not by going off and doing a bunch of things and trying out new rituals and new practices and doing new things. What he's doing is he is returning us to Jesus. And he says, it is by faith that you battle the temptations. Notice what he says in verse 12. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God. It is faith that unites us to Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is that by faith, right through your baptism, you were united to Jesus and all of His power. By faith, you were united to Jesus and all of His power. Let me try to illustrate this if I can. Making it up? Let's see what we can come up with. Alright. Let's think about a laptop computer for a second. How many, does anybody know what a laptop, have laptop computers made it? I hear they're a big deal. They're going, they're sweeping all the high schools. I think they're going to go up to college soon. But if you know what a laptop computer is, like they're powerful. Like you can like program a rocket and get it to the moon on your laptop if you know what you're doing. And if you have a laptop computer, you can throw it in your bag and you can take your computer like down to the lawn. Or you can take your computer to Bowman Field. Or you can take your computer to, I don't know, Cool Beans Coffee. Like, is that in Lexington or something like that? Yeah, all right. See, I have a laptop computer, and there's this thing called the Google. And I can look up your schools and what's around your schools, and that's what I did. Cool Beans Coffee. All right, so you can take your laptop computer, you know, to all these places. And you can do your homework. You can go on the YouTubes. You can go on the Facebooks. You can play video games or whatever it is. What you do. And let's say you take your laptop computer and you, and you go to the library, right? And so you're hanging out at the library and you're, you've programmed your computer to do all your math equations for you because your computer's so powerful. And there you are and you're just crushing some homework until the sprinkler system comes on and it like occupies. So like you're crushing your homework and your computer is powerful until it isn't powerful. And what begins to happen is that your laptop computer begins to die. It begins to lose its power because the battery begins to run out. And so when your battery runs out, which is the source of the power for the computer, like you need help. And uh, we need to function. Anyway, so you need help. And so what do you do? So you like elbow your friend and you go, hey, friend, uh, give me your power cord. Right, Because I need to power up my computer. And so you get the power cord. Right? You plug in the power cord, your computer to the power cord. And then your computer is powerful again. Now what happens in the midst of that is that you now have power that is going into your computer. But the power is not the cord. Right? The electricity that runs through the cord is the power that empowers your computer to work. Right? And so the cord is an access point to the power, which is the electricity, that then fills up the battery or the storehouse or the computer so that you can do powerful things in the world. And that's the way faith works in our life. We are weak. God is strong. By faith, His power fills us that we might powerfully go out and work in the world. Right? Does that make sense? And so we have been united to Jesus, who is the true power source. And you see this in verses 9 and 10. For in Him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, Christ is the true power. Now all these false teachers, they had come to town and they'd say, yeah, you know, Jesus, He was godly, but He was not God. Like, Jesus was this watered-down version of the divine. But what Paul is saying is no. Jesus is God in concentrate. He's not some watered-down version of the divine. He is the fullness of the divine. He is the fullness of God. And so what is amazing is that this Jesus, who is the fullness of God, Now, fills us with himself, which means that the power of God now dwells within us. And this is significant because so often we do not identify ourselves as those who are united to the fullness of God, but we define ourselves and identify ourselves by our struggles. I'm SSA, I'm a victim. I'm bitter, I'm depressed, I'm a joke, I'm worthless, I'm a failure. And when we sit down and talk with one another at Bodo's or at the Starbucks, what we talk about is all of our struggles and all of our weaknesses. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to know that you have something better to talk about. That's not all you are. There is someone, there is something in your life that is more beautiful than your sin. Think about it this way. How many of you have ever gone out with a, somebody? None of you. Of oh, three of you. Three of you have had a date. Congratulations. Wow. I guess you have to be like 18. I don't know. Like, anyway. So, it's bizarre. I don't understand what's happening. But anyway, so if you... Uh, Imagine a world where people like went out with each other, right? And they like became boyfriend and girlfriends. Like the movies do this all the time. Those are the stories that shape your hearts. And uh, and so, anyway, as you think about, as you think about going out with other, unless you you've been a boyfriend, and then there's this thing that happens whenever you date somebody, and it's called breaking up, all right? And when you break up with one another, you go out with all your friends, and you just sort of talk about the breakup. And you talk about your new foe, right? And like for years, you talk about, I can't believe that Sarah did that to me. Can you believe that Jimmy would have said that? I can't believe these. Right? And you just talk about those things over and over and over again until something happens. Until somebody else asks you out. And once somebody else asks you out, you've got something new to rejoice in. And you have something new to talk about. And what Paul is telling us is that in a sense, by virtue of being united to Jesus, you have broken up with sin, and you are in a new relationship with Christ. And that relationship is worth talking about. Your relationship to sin and your weakness pales in comparison to the beauty of His great love uh, for you. Christians talk about all the time that we have a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, I, it's kind of a weird thing to say. What does it mean to be in a personal relationship with Jesus? Well, let's think about what personal relationships are. Personal relationships are not private relationships. Personal relationships are relating to persons. That's what makes them personal, right? Right. And so let's think about different relationships that exist, that are personal. There are relationships such as the parent-child relationship. There's the husband-wife relationship. There's the friend-boyfriend-girl relationship. There's the friends, I wish we were more than friends, and I went to this conference, and now I wish we went to the same school relationship. <laughs> okay. And all of these relationships are incredibly personal, and some of them might be too personal. Uh, But if we think about these relationships, right, they all are different and they all are personal. And if I were to relate to you the way I relate to my wife, I'd be fired. Right. (laughs) And if I were to if I were. So you're like, oh, man, let's see what that would look like. And uh, I know. and, uh, And then others of us. Right. If you were to think about. If you were to think about, uh, like, the relationship of parent-child, like, if I were to come up to you and just give you a big fat zerbert on your belly, right? That would be creepy, right? Uh, but I can do that to my teenage son. I mean, it's not, he's my son. We can do that, all right? And so it's creepy, right? So, all right, come with me. I've lost you. I've lost you. Come back, come back. Here's my point. Like we relate to people, but all of the relationships that we are in are different and they're different with respect to the person. And so what does this mean for Jesus? What it means is that we relate to Jesus in light of our relationship with him. And what is that relationship? All right. Notice what it says in verse 10. You have been filled in him. Notice verse 11, in Him also you were circumcised. Verse 12, having been buried with Him. Verse 13, God made you alive together with Him. The relationship that we have with Jesus is that you and I are in Him. We are with Him. And as He works that out in the Bible, what He is saying is that His life is now our life. He fills us with Himself such that, Paul can say, when Jesus was circumcised, you were circumcised. When Jesus was buried, you were buried. When Jesus was raised from the dead, you were raised from the dead. When Jesus was made alive once again, you were made alive. And this is what theologians call union with Christ. And what union with Christ means is that you and I are so united to Jesus that He is working His life into ours. And Paul begins to word this out in verses 11 and 12. And he says, In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, look, you were circumcised in Jesus, it doesn't seem like much of a big deal for us who are Gentiles in the 21st century. <sighs> oh, you're circumcised, amazing, right? Uh, but this was huge, right, for uh, for Paul and the Colossians because the Colossians had been told, right, if you want to be serious. About God. If you want to prepare your body to be sufficient for God, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, then you must fully commit and you must become sufficient for the kingdom by cutting off your flesh. Right? You see, circumcision had always been intended to be a sign of God's promised love for His people. It became an external sign of an inner reality of a heart that had been turned towards God. But then the Colossians and the Jews had been taking the sign of God and they had been saying, this is the sign that makes you sufficient. And so what they were doing is they were then cutting off this little piece of skin and then they would throw it away and they said, I have cut off my flesh. See how committed I am. See how much I have prepared myself. See how I am sufficient for the kingdom. See how I am serious and new and enough. And then what Paul is saying is, look, you've already been circumcised in Jesus. And so before you pick up a knife and mutilate yourself, your true circumcision has already happened in Christ. When He died, you died. When He was made alive, you were made alive. And that's the point in the rest of the verse. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so Paul is saying, before you take up the knife and you cut off a little piece of skin off your penis, you need to look to Jesus once again. And you need to remember that he didn't just give a little piece of skin. He gave his entire life for you. His life, his work, his story, his death, his resurrection, his obedience, his sonship, it is all yours by faith. You have been united to Christ, and therefore there is no need to cut yourself because he is the one who is sufficient and makes you sufficient. And it's this union with Jesus that then begins to give us hope in the midst of the battle. See this in verse 9. In Him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him. And what this means is that the fullness of God's power has now begun to fill you. Right? The fullness of His power is at your disposal for this fight against sin. And I want you to notice what kind of power it is that begins to fill us. Verse 12, You were raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And so what Paul is saying is that you and I, by faith, have been filled with the power of the resurrection. The same power of God that brought Jesus from the dead is the same power that is at work in your life to bring you from death into life. Notice what he says in verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. And so what Paul is saying is, you were dead. You loved sin. You were dead to God. You did not care about your sin. You went on with your sin and you just remained dead and you did not fight it. But now in Jesus... By faith, you have been made alive to God and dead to sin. And so now there's this thing that's at work in you, which is called the resurrection. And he calls it the resurrection because right now we've been made alive in such a way that we live towards God as a foretaste of the final bodily resurrection, which is to come. Our lives are living towards the resurrection. Because the Spirit of God at work in you by faith has resurrected you and me from the dead. That presents a problem for us. And the problem is that when you become alive to God, there is a battle that then enters into your life. Because when you were dead, you didn't care about sin. You didn't care about the way you interacted on the Internet. You didn't care about the way you treated people. You didn't care about God. But now, by faith, you have been made alive to God. And what that means is that there is a battle and there is a fight and there is a struggle that is at work in all of us. And, but what is beautiful about that is that the battle should not be a place of discouragement. The battle is evidence that God's resurrection is at work in you. If you are battling, that is the power of God at work in your life. The opposite is true as well. If you do not care about your sin... You might not be alive. And that presents a real question for us, right? Are you alive or are you dead? And I think that this is very important because so often when we think about our struggles and our battles, we think that we've got to fight sin and win in order to be in a relationship with God. The gospel tells us it's the exact opposite. You fight sin because you are in a relationship with God. Without Him, we do not care. So what do you do then when those battles begin to overwhelm you? You go sit in your closet and you suck your thumb and you hope for another day, right? (laughs) Jesus invites us when we are overwhelmed and when we fail to return to Him. Look at verse 13 and 14. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. What He's saying is that all of your failures in the past and the present and the future have all been nailed to the cross in Jesus. And when He died, He died for you and all of it. It is finished and it is over. But what the law and what your guilt want to do to you is they want to function like Photoshop editors, and they want to point out every blemish and every extra, and they want to point it out, and they want to mock you and shame you with it. And what Jesus is inviting each of us to do in the midst of our failures is to return to Him. And to live once again in the power of his resurrection through faith in his love for you. Let's pray. Father, help us to live in new ways. By the power of your spirit, we are thankful for your kindness and that you give all of yourself to us. All of your work, all of your love, and all of your power. And all of us here in this room who have come to trust you, we are in those battles. And so would you meet us in our need and give us all we stand in need of, which is you. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.